Well, I thought we'd start the podcast today with a little chat about true love. Sure, Sophocles said that true love frees us from the weight and pain of life, and Plato said the mere touch of true love turns everyone into a poet, and Aristotle said it was a single soul inhabiting two bodies, which always kind of grosses me out. But what if true love was simpler than all of that? Yeah, simpler than anything any of the great philosophers said. What if true love is just having someone to hold the phone for you while you play an acoustic song into the receiver while calling into some punk kid's radio show in 1991? So I'm the punk kid in that scenario, by the way, and the person playing the song, well, that's my guest today on the program, and the person holding the phone for him, well, 32 years later, that person is still his wife. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the true love version, by the way, the podcast. Check this out. It was the middle of summer, not too much to do. But the grass was green and the sky was blue. So you lie with your sweatshirt stuck under your head. And the whole backyard was just a four-poster bed. Just as sure as sky riding would fade from the sky, August was plotting. I was pulling the needles out of my mama's cactus Just wondering where to sky Riders practice That is the music of my guest today on the program, Milo Binder. Let me tell you a little bit about Milo Binder. All right, so the little bit part of that intro is actually pretty literal this time around because there's only a little bit to tell about Milo Binder. But I'm happy to report that in spite of how little there is in terms of background on the Southern California-born singer-songwriter, his long-awaited return to the musical ring is going to finally add some chapters to a book that, up to this point, has been far too short. I'll dispense with the literary metaphor and get right to the simple fact. Milo Binder put out one brilliant album in 1991, and then that was that. He was gone. Now, Alias Records was an indie rock label that had folks like Too Much Joy and The Sneetches, and when they put out Milo's album, it was a huge departure from the music they normally released. An 11-song folk album, Binder's self-titled release, was one of those rare instances where the artist arrived fully formed with no need to take three or four albums to find their musical footing or narrative voice. The guy was just ready to go. Songs like Donald Thorne and A Boy in His Career were wise and observational, and his guitar playing was rich and assured, his delivery confident and brimming with belief. All those years ago, Milo Binder was gracious enough to call into my college radio show Bedtime with Alex on KSMC, and he played two songs while his girlfriend held the phone for him. Donald Thorne from the first album, and the song you just heard, Skyriders, which I assumed would be on the second one. But the second one never came. That is until now. 32 years later, it's about to arrive. Titled The Unspeakable Milo Binder, the two tracks you'll hear in full on today's episode demonstrate that Binder not only still has the magic, he's never sounded better. 
and he's been missed. I can't think of an artist with as much musical dexterity, poetic exactitude, and narrative finesse. So take a seat and relax, and join me as I welcome back the fabulous Milo Binder, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Kim Rogers. I do know Kim. We go way, 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 way back. L.A. music scene, mid-80s, late-80s. Kim um, put her record out on Island in probably 89. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then your record came out on Alias, I guess, a year later. That, yeah, right. And then, uh, then you guys made me wait a combined almost 60 years for your... <laughs> yeah we're going for the uh we're coming after willis allen ramsey for the uh for the record well you beat you beat guns and roses and you beat my bloody valentine what else do you need there you go that's um very competitive i have so much i want to talk to you about but i was wondering we'll kind of just jump around but have you been carrying this record around with you in one form or another in your brain um, for the last 32 years? How does that work in terms of, I'm really interested in all that space. I mean, something like that, right? Like there, there's a long story, which we'll probably get into about like why that took a, as long as it did. And, and the answer is a, a bunch of those songs were burning a hole in my pocket for a long, long time. And one of the things that motivated me to, to finally make a record again was that I just didn't want to like, I didn't want to not give them a life. I felt like they were as good as the ones that were on my record and they deserve to be heard. Um, But then it like started to be a problem because like there was the question of like, well, now that it's been five years, 10 years, 15 years, like I should do something that reflects now. Right. So I shouldn't do those songs, but then those were the songs that were bugging me. Right. So what I finally did on the new record was kind of a almost half and half approach, which is I took the five songs uh, that were sort of bugging me the most and recorded them with this record. And then there's seven new songs, uh, you know, in with them. And and that was sort of, you know, the way we we did this. I had enough material for a totally brand new album, but I just really didn't want to leave those castaways cast away any longer. You know. And so in all this time, when you're just living your life as a person in the world, are you still writing songs? Are you, cre- what is your creative process like? Because a lot of people think that when you put a record out, that represents obviously a, a creative period of time for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a record comes out a year or two later and that, re- that we can sort of figure out the connective tissue between those. But when it's been 32 years, is it, were there weeks, days, months, years where you wouldn't pick up the guitar or like, what what did that look like for you? 
I went through about a 17 year period where I did not finish a song. Okay. Um, I now mind you, I was always writing. I'm wired to like always write, but I was, but when I talk about finishing, there's, so like the deal is, is that when you're writing songs, there is a certain part of it that comes to you via inspiration. Right. And then every song to get finished requires some level of like sitting down and doing the hard work, doing some craft and actually finishing, making, make, cause you, you never get a whole gift. You know what I mean? You get like parts of it and then you have to like sit down and work out the puzzle and make some compromises to finish it. And absent like a record or a record deal or playing a club or some reason that I was going to finish it. I just like for like all those years, I didn't see, there was no part of me. Like I just went on to the next thing that I was inspired by. I just didn't sit down and do the craft part. And I always had this illusion that like, uh, that more inspiration would come along and just finish that song for me. And it never happened. And then most of those songs just sat in the unfinished pile for forever. And then at a certain point, uh, after a few years, I kind of disabused myself of that uh, notion. And I finally started just finishing songs again. Because there's the creative impulse and then there's the craftsman who needs to craft it, right? Yeah, I think craft is like a bad word for some people, right? Because you you never yeah. like, yeah, you don't want to like believe you're crafty or, or, you know what I mean? But like, I mean, like, okay, if you wanted to, make me feel embarrassed, right? You could listen to one of my songs and identify the part where some compromise was involved, right? Where like I had to just create some connective tissue to like get this part and and this other part to put them together. And a lot of times you'll find that exact piece that's like, this is where I just had to do some work. You know, like those are really embarrassing. Like, you know, like when somebody mentions those, you get kind of like, you feel caught. You know what I mean? I know, but like I talked to this guy who was in this band called Jazz is Dead. They did all Grateful Dead songs as jazz. And yeah. I was talking to him years ago. And I said to him, you know, we were talking about writing. And I said, I'm worried sometimes I'm a poet. If I take something from a poem and put it in another poem, people are going to know. And he said to me, no one knows, man. So I'm I'm hearing you say this. I'm thinking, I don't think people really know that, though. Do you think they can hear it? I mean, mostly they can't. But like every once in a while, every once in a while I get in a conversation with someone who's deep into my songs and they'll point those things out. And then it's like, you know, like your, your parents caught you abusing yourself or something. You know what I mean? Like it, it's but like it's cool. Like it's just like what it takes to, you know, and I also hear it in other people's songwriting even people i really admire I'm, I'm now sort of trained to hear oh that's the part that he had to that's where you know like santa didn't come and give him anything and he had to stitch some pieces and that's it, like look every song needs some of that or else it's just not a song right you know so that's just what it is but yeah like some of that like i just went a long period where i just wasn't doing that work was part of that you being hard on yourself or did you legitimately not finish the song? I mean, I would legitimately not finish, you know, 
I, there were a lot of like, and, and I don't know how to like go into this without going into some of the story again, like why, like I stopped and why it was so long, but there was a lot of, you know, some of it involved somebody, the, the person who was managing me and my best friend uh, uh, passing away. And I went through some emotional stuff about like, I mean, this is, I, it feels weird to talk about it, but I went through, through some emotional stuff about writing songs that he wasn't going to get to hear. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean like just like so like there was a I had a real block to finish anything you know what I mean because I was just like well you know like my my uh you know he was my manager my friend John Scalacci was his name and he was a great great uh friend and a great advocate of like everything I did and he really made my that first record I, I still don't know for a fact whether I was at all talented or whether he was such a good manager and so charming that people that he talked people into giving me breaks you know what I mean like I still like always uh there was a side of it where it just felt like it was their the efforts of of John that like so much of this was happening and when he passed away like I said I really went through this feeling of like well you know like you know, I don't know, do I have a right to have songs that that even John will never know? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, like, and I just felt blocked. And, and there were other things happening in my life that just sort of pulled me away from, like, that person. And, and you get also involved in, like, other, uh, what's the word for, other challenges. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, songwriting is one form of puzzle, but there's a lot of puzzles in life. Right. You know? So, yeah. Well, first of all, it is a great record, and um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a brilliant record, and what and that record to me is so interesting because for a debut album, I mean, you it's so fully formed, and from the guitar playing to the vocals to the to the lyrics, it's an album. If you had told me this is his tenth album, I would have believed you because it was so. It just sounded like somebody who had who had. Um, arrived fully formed which is not easy um and it's a it's a rare thing and it made i mean you're are you originally from southern california yeah i was a la kid okay and so and john was someone you grew up with that is that the no we met each other uh, in our i was about 19 uh i answered an ad for a band that he was in and we were in a band together. And then when that broke up, he just said, hey, I like your songs. Why don't I just manage you? You know, and that sort of is what what started our uh, partnership. And he was like, I, someday somebody will, will talk a little bit about John Scalacci and what he did. If you ask any of the sort of singer-songwriter types in Los Angeles running around that time, Kim will tell you, for instance, Kim Rogers and other people, he really sort of, in a lot of ways, put put that whole scene like he advocated for everybody. You know what I mean? He was a pretty beloved figure around that time and and did a lot of things. I still kind of hear from people who, uh, you know, he made an impact on. So John is just a really uh, uh, great guy and and like just, and I don't know, hard to get all, get sentimental about it, but a, a, a real guiding light in my life and, and, you know, still, God, he's been gone now almost, I don't know, 20 six 27 years and 
you know, I probably only knew him for 10, 12 years, mm-hmm. you know, but like some people just don't leave. Right. Yeah. Right. And your band that you guys were in, was that a rock band or was it a foot? Was it a, what was that? <laughs> what was it? We were, we were called the blue, blue morning. And we were, it was, so I answered this ad that said, uh, uh, uh improvisational, uh, folk band influenced by the Velvet Underground, Phil Oaks, and The Who. Not bad. Yeah. And I was like, well, I've never seen an ad like that before, so I just need to know these people, right? So uh, I went, and so it was these guys, and they would get together in the park, and they would improvise. And John and the drummer uh, were, uh, were both what I would kindly call non-musicians. Um, John would have a trumpet. The, the drummer would play like... Uh, uh, just like one or, you know, like on a snare alone. Um, and then there was this guy named Guy Malkerson, who at the time would write these sort of political songs or whatever. And his songs were really good. And uh, uh, I liked him, him, his songs. I liked him a lot. Um, the, the point is we were a terrible band. And and the whole thing, nobody like told anybody how to what to play or how to play. And we really didn't know how to be a band. It was one guy strumming along while two guys just sort of made whatever sound they wanted onto it. And then you added me and nobody knew how to play together. And, you know, we ended up like being, I don't know, booked a lot in LA, like with poets and stuff like that. And people liked us, but I think they liked us not because we could play, but because we were funny. Um, so it wasn't, I don't know if you call us a real band, but we were something, we were fun or, you know, uh, our shows were highly conceptual. <laughs> I was, I, yeah, I would imagine so. Um, especially with the improvisational element, were you a theater guy? Like what was your background and what, what, what was your thing? Well, yeah, I was I actually started off uh, as an actor. So I spent uh, years and years uh well, I mean years and years by that point I'm only like 19 or 20 but I from about 14 up I'd been auditioning around LA I'd done a decent amount of theater not really ever broken substantively into f- uh, film or anything uh I worked with a lot of really strong acting teachers and you know uh had sort of started to develop some sense that people thought I was good but I just wasn't getting cast right and like the thing is, is that right at that moment, you have to like put in time how old I am and like what was happening. Uh, I'm like this kid who grew up with like 70s films, right? Like I want to be in like Badlands or, you know what I mean? Something yeah. like that. And like, we're right at the dawn of like the, what what did they call the, uh, that group of people with like Emilio Estevez and oh like, like the brat the brat pack the brat pack that was what was starting to happen and they weren't really making those movies that like I dreamed about being you know like the idea that like a a an odd looking you know young you know guy like me was gonna you know like Hoffman or, or somebody or Pacino they could get work in the era before but like it wasn't gonna work in the era of Andrew McCarthy you know, it was, all, it was all pretty boys. It was all pretty boys. And like, I just wasn't like, I would, at the time I go to auditions and, you know, you'd mostly see like sons of famous. So it would be like Josh Brolin or like uh, Chad Lowe, like that I'd be up against, or sometimes like you'd see Kiefer Sutherland or somebody like that. Right. And like, I just wasn't getting cast, mm. you know, and it was 
so like I that when I answered that ad, I was kind of a little demoralized from the acting thing and just like looking for other creative things. And I'd I'd sort of written songs privately, never thought anything about doing anything with them. But that was like sort of what got me to like think about. So yeah, theater background. You mentioned that the ad had the Velvet Underground name checked and you liked that. Were you a Velvet's fan? And also how did punk rock land with you, if at all? Um, good question. Well, I, yeah, I do always have like the Velvets, you know, punk rock didn't land very well with me mm. because what I, well, so you, again, you have to put it like an age, right? So I'm born in 65. Okay. Right. So like when punk hits, like in America, would we charitably say like 77, 78? Let's say 77, 78, and let's say the L.A. punk scene around the same time started to really, I mean, you had bands like X and the Gun Club and all the, like, the Weirdos, the Germs, all these really interesting um, dynamic punk scene happening kind of in your in your area, too. So I'm curious about, like, the British punk and then the L.A. punk. Yeah, I, so the deal is, is, like, remember, 77, 78, I'm 12, 13 years old. So, yeah. like happening in the clubs isn't necessarily reaching me yet because I'm not in the clubs, right? I'm in like the elementary school or the middle school at that right. you know? And like what I'm seeing, and, and okay, so like when you're that age, you're like just picking up on music in general, right? And I'm like this sort of semi-lonely kid and I'm hearing songs on the radio and they're kind of whispering adult thoughts in my ear in, in a way that like nobody around me is, you, nobody's talking to me that way in my life. So I'm like just really feeling like connected, connection from this music in a way that like I'm not getting anywhere else. And like you start like looking into music and you figure out who, who these people are and like who the best ones are and what all. And so you pick up early on like, you know, Dylan and, you know, like, like the Beatles and all that stuff and the kinks. And I was early on the zombies was an, one of my favorites really early. Like that stuff all meant a ton to me. And I'm like, and then all of a sudden punk rock comes on and it's sort of telling you, well, fuck all that. Like, like, you know, right. like what a drag, right? My, my sister's all done with her Beatles and so on. And, so on. and you're like, wait, I just discovered these people and you're telling me I have to surrender them for you and like I wasn't hearing the same connection getting the same poetry from like the the early punk records that I was hearing so like in my mind it was like a real like like you know defensive sort of posture that I took with with punk Velvet Underground was like the rare case because Lou Reed had songs and I recognized the songs so like early on, like the the, the punks who were going to break through to me were going to be, you know, uh, you know, Jonathan Richman and Elvis Costello wasn't really a punk, but we thought of him as a punk back then. You know what I mean? Like that was the kind of stuff that was going to make it for me. And then like the other now, mind you, like as I've gotten older, of course, I recognize a lot of great songs. You know, in punk, too, but I like you have to excuse my 15 year old ear for not quite you know getting that well i'm i'm five years behind you i was born in 70 okay for me the people who started to talk to me in ways 
I'd never been spoken to before were Paul Westerberg, right? Mm -hmm. The replacements, that kind of that kind of ideology, that kind of um, the the sort of the scruffy punk ethos with incredibly literate songwriting, even like bands like Soul Asylum, those early records, I think um, lyrically were were really quite strong. Um, mm -hmm. Jonathan Richmond was huge for me as well. And so, yeah, I'm a little bit behind you, but I know what you mean. I wasn't going to see those bands. I was too young. Um, but did bands like The Replacements, did they connect with you in somewhere in like 85, 86 when you're a little bit older? Did that stuff connect? I mean, sort of like I was late to them because I like my way of like connecting with music was really I was a very backwards looking uh, like I always looked at it as like a party that I got to late and you had to like figure out what had happened before you got there. Right. And so like, I wasn't like really oriented to like what's happening now. Right. That wasn't just how, that how I, so I would rely like a lot of times, like when something good that was happening sort of uh, in a modern way was like, I would rely on it to sort of start filtered down to me eventually through other people who sort of were into it. So like, I remember, uh, okay, the first time I even clocked that like Westerberg was somebody I had to like uh, deal with was uh, I did a show at the Lhasa Club in Los Angeles and the bill that night was uh, 10,000 Maniacs, a little bit before they were popular, uh, the Dream Syndicate, Cindy Lee Berryhill, uh, Bill C., from at the time his band was the need i think uh, i'm trying and, and let's see and then me that's that's what the bill was that night and bill got on and played uh, unsatisfied <laughs> and i remember watching him and going oh man you know he said there's a replacement song and i'm like oh okay i guess you got to pay attention to them that that's a real song he just played you know like right but i didn't hear it from the replace you know what i mean like i came to it sort of that way how um, did the dream syndicate land for you you know great right like yeah yeah like uh, uh, not my like natural like inclination like to, to but like again like like steve wins like a really good songwriter you know what i mean you just recognize it when you hear it yeah i was less like oriented towards oh that band makes a noise Right. Like that was not my, I'm a song guy. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, like, like I would, I could appreciate that, but it would be like, like fourth on the list of things I would appreciate. But like, you know, yeah, you recognize a good songwriter, like right out of the gate when you hear that. And so like, he was clearly, you know, and, and remains a really, really fine songwriter. Indeed. And, and, and they were very velvety too. And, sure. uh, you know, but, but, there's such good songs that were happening. So there's I mean, a lot of like vital music happening around you. Um, I always make the joke that you ever heard, do you guys have 24 hour fitness down there? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So the joke is that when you join 24 hour fitness, it was easy to join, but you could never get out of it. Right. Like it was right. really hard to get out of it. Right. And that's how I understood it was at alias records, which had you on their roster. And a friend of mine had a band up here in the Bay area called Tucker. And they were mm -hmm. a great band and they were going to sign with Alias, but it was like a seven album deal. And there was another band from, I think they were from Davis called Knapsack. 
Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why is Knapsack putting so many albums out on, on Alias? And I realized what my friend was telling me is that like contractually, um, they kind of they kind of cornered you in that way. That was sort of how it was designed. That may not be a fair um, yeah. rendering of how it really was. You got away with one. <laughs> was the plan, did you sign a contract for one or were you meant to do much more? Or what was your experience with them? I mean, I don't remember the amount of records. on. I, you look... I was so naive the way I would have processed a long contract is I get to make all these records. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, and like Alias dropped me after the first one. Um, so oh. like, it was just, yeah. And I get it. Right. So the timing, you have to understand, like my record comes out and then not too many months after it, uh, uh, Nirvana puts out, uh, nevermind. Right. And right. like that hits. And my read of it, and maybe someone at, at Alias will, would say otherwise, but my read of it was they decided in that moment that they had to like lean into being a, uh, they, you know, independent records were farm teams for like major labels at that moment. Yes. Right. And they had to lean into a a certain image and i wasn't that image i guess they were sort of building their brand and the year before that that brand might have included me but after after nirvana hit it wasn't going to include me so i think they they cleared out a lot of the dust that they thought confused people they'd put out like not just me but also like a a sort of what they could a singer song or acoustic compilation at the time and then i think they really regretted being seen as acoustic at that moment right when that hits so i think that was you know probably what what did that um but they were they were cool because i remember that the acoustic comp you're talking about but they had bookending you they had too much joy mm -hmm. um, which relates sort of like scruffy punks from new jersey that were funny and smart and then yeah music club from here put out that everclear record which is so great masterpiece um then they also had like x tall and uh, God's Little Monkeys and um, Sneetches, Harm Farm. Sneetches, Harm Farm. Um, it's so they were they were kind of all over the place. I'm surprised. I didn't know that you were dropped. That how did that land for you? Like was that a was that a difficult moment? Because it seems like it would be. It was. It was probably the first of sort of several hits that kind of, uh, you know, uh, accounts for sort of like what happened with me, right? Because we were. Uh, I was recording demos for that record at the time um, in Los Angeles with my friend uh, Randell Kirsch, who was in a, a, a band. What was his band? They were called Show of Hands, and he, he played. I know that band. Was it? Was that with Chris Hickey? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we we were working on on demos there, and I had would I'd actually uh, was gone looking for a. Uh, with a, a producer and we'd just gotten uh john simon who'd produced uh you know the band's records and the first elvis costello records and steve forbert's mm. big record and blood sweat and tears like basically my favorite producer you know in the world gotten him to agree to make the record and at, at a really small budget um and so I was really looking forward to that. And then like they dropped me right then. So it was like, okay, we, we don't, we can't even make that budget because, you know, like 
so we just carried on and tried to finish the records. I was already that, you know, those demos were going to be, I guess my second record is, is what happened. Um, and then the story that uh, this all happens in a matter of months is they dropped me. We, we were going on with the record. And then uh, uh, my manager, as we finished the record, my manager uh, died in a car crash. Um, and so like, I'm left without a manager. He also, we believe he had the, um, I had just given him the finished mixes. I, we believe he had them in his car because they were not recovered. So we lost the album itself, um, which we could have gone and remixed, but you know, you can understand that like, I just didn't have it in me. No. Yeah. So like at that point, it's like, okay, I've got to move forward with no uh, record deal, no manager, no, you know what I mean? Don't have an album and, you know, like, and I, and I didn't really know how to like, I was far enough along that I had a, you know, like, like a record deal and people liked what I did, but I didn't know anything about how to book myself or do anything because he'd been doing all that all these years. So it just felt like daunting to like face that learning curve. Yeah. You know, so like, I just sort of didn't. So you weren't knocking on doors. I know Show of Hands was on IRS, I think, for five seconds. They put a record out with them. Yeah, they did. Um, the, but that would predated that. So would, would you weren't knocking on doors of record labels either, that you were just sort of... Not me personally. I mean, right. yeah, John uh, did, basically. He, You know, we had lots of, you know, for a while when I was getting a lot of press, we had all the, you know... Uh, we talked to majors and stuff and then they would see me play. And of course they wouldn't see any kind of money or any kind of hit in what I was doing. Cause Lord knows I wasn't even thinking that direction or trying for anything like that. I was just a, you know, weird outsider artist, uh, songwriter, you know, like not. So they, they look at me and then pass. And then, you know, eventually alias took us up, which was great. And then when they dropped me and, you know, uh, John passed. It's sort of like there was sort of a moment there where it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe I need to just pull away from this mm. for a while. And I kind of had the idea that I would get back to it, but then other stuff kind of, you know, right. and life uh, life happens. Yeah, because there were places for outsider folk artists. Jonathan Richmond had a home in a bunch of different places. Cindy Lee Berryhill, who you mentioned, had a home. There was Red House Records. They had a whole roster of people. So there were places, but your intention was, I'll get back to it. But right now, there's life that's going on that I want to deal with. And um, so you you stopped playing out too. You weren't even you weren't even doing shows. Yeah, no, I I basically I basically shut it down hmm. right around that time. There were other like uh, competing things. I had some family stuff. I had a you know grandmother with. Alzheimer's at the time that I had to need and we were uh, my wife and I decided we were going to leave LA and that uh, leaving LA was not a good way to you know so we moved to like Colorado where you know I just didn't know anyone so my whole identity as a music wasn't there anymore I really went and found that I just wasn't a musician to anyone anymore you know um, what about so to yourself how, how did you articulate you as a musician to you Good question. You know, I mean, I have to be honest, like right around that time, like I started thinking of it like as an addiction, 
right? I started thinking of that identity as a thing that I needed to break myself as of, that that I'd spent too much time sort of chasing the approval of others, chasing, you know, and that I kind of needed to like, just drop that shell of who I was hmm. and try to figure out as a sort of more adult person in the world, like who I actually am, if like this, this desperate attempt to sort of be accepted somewhere in the world wasn't following me around, you know, because that's like a twenties thing, right? Like you're in your twenties and you're like, I've got to make some sort of success out of myself. I've got to like show myself to be very special at something, you know, and then, then you hit a point where you go like, is that really, you know, like, so like when I went on tour with that record, I'd drive around and I'd go to like the next college radio and then I'd like meet the person. They'd say, oh, you know, we just had, uh, what was, what was their name? Uh, blanket on that band. What's the band? Gibby was the lead singer. Oh, Butthole Surfers. Okay. We just had the Butthole Surfers in town, man. And like Gibby pissed his pants on stage and they'd tell you stuff like that. And you'd like, I don't know, like as I was just getting older, there was just parts of me that were like, like, I don't know, like, am I listening to this? Am I like, is this, what does this have to do with what I'm doing? Why, like, it just didn't really feel like more and more, it felt like not an adult pursuit to like have your whole business model for yourself be drive around the country and try and convince kids four years younger than you that you're, that you're still, you know, cool or whatever. Like, I just kind of fell out of love with that. And that all crystallized this one night where I'm like playing the bottom line um, and, um, you know, the village voice came to interview me and it felt all very heady. Somebody in some, I can't remember what they were, but somebody took me to a big dinner like I was important. And yeah, I got treated, you know, like the king of New York that night. And anyways, the the, the journalist who sat there who, who brought me and sat down and looked me in the face and started telling me like, hey, man, I can get you these paintings that John Wayne Gacy made of like clowns and like all of these other uh, artists are have these paintings and you should want them too. And I remember having like this thing click in my head that just was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't listen. Like he's talking about a person who like a serial killer who like, you know, and like, I'm supposed to think this is like cool or something. Like just, you know what I mean? Like I just, I just, the love for like being in that situation just sort of left my body, you know? So like, that's sort of the mindset that I was in, you know, like that I, even like before I got dropped from the label or before, you know, like, like I'd already been kind of questioning, is this a thing to do? Well, Moses, he came down the mountain, his beard was gray as sand. Gave me ten good reasons, baby, why I should be your man. Lord, his words, they hit me so hard I could not stand. And I said, baby, I should be your man. In dreams I walked the desert. I sailed the salted sea 
I came upon a burning bush It spoke these words to me He said only one thing certain About God's majestic plan And baby I should be your man If it's so, tell me why You try to deny What can't be denied Yes, it's true, you can run It's easily done But don't try to hide Well, ain't nobody knows you Nobody knows your needs Except the boy who sailed to you Was pulled out of the reeds Oh, baby, I've been with you Since before it all began And it made me your ego needs right um which makes me then think you probably stop with acting too because it really is the same thing right in terms of the approval yeah yeah like i mean that i guess that's a good way of putting it yeah there's just a part of me that just was like okay i gotta i've gotta find like a different path for me and it really can't be about aren't i clever aren't i smart aren't i you know what i mean like like i so for a while i just really like put all that across and the, and the thing I haven't like we haven't gone into but like soon after that when we got to Colorado my daughter was born my first child my first born daughter was born with um some pretty serious disabilities um like profound disabilities and they said she wasn't going to live past age two and you know uh she she is alive she's with me right now she's 25 almost 26 um but I had to really step to just being a a father. Mm. Right. And like my life had to be about that. And so like that, like what up to that point, there was some open door that I might find a way to go back to music on my own terms. But then when that happened, I was like, there's no way I can tour. There's no way I, you know, that's the past. I'm just not, I'm not that guy anymore. And did you, did you keep going down the family path? Do you have several children? Did you just, you leaned into being a, being a family man? Yeah, I have two. Two. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and I've been dad for, for all this time and just happily and gratefully so. And, yeah. you know, like, there's been lots of creative stuff. You, I mean, it's amazing, like how creative just real life can be, you know what I mean? How, uh, so I find ways to like, you know, I've always just stayed interested and there's lots of, you know, things that I've been involved in that, that uh, scratched 
you know, uh, whatever urge that was in me to like, like, you know, write or do whatever. So like, I, I was okay. You know what I mean? Like, I, like I, I ultimately, and in fact, when I started writing again, I, I, uh, I want to say now eight or so years ago, I did started working with, uh, do you know, Willie Aaron, he was in the balancing act. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, late eighties folk band. Love the balancing act. Um, Willie's my best friend. Oh. And, and we've been friends going all the way back to, you know, the, the mid eighties. And he's the guy who sort of brought me back as a musician. Cause like sort of when everybody else stopped treating me like one, he's Willie's continued to have a music career and he always kind of pulls me. He sort of kept reminding me, Hey, you got things to do. You're, you know what I mean? You're, you're still in this. You're still, you're good. You you're. And, and so like we did a, a record together, um, that uh, was sort of a quasi kids or sort of like Nilsson's The Point, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of idea, like a story record. And we made that, we were just getting ready to like put it out. It, it's, I mean, you can see it right now. It's, it's called Paisley and the Firefly. It's on all the services, but we didn't do a real release of it because uh, COVID came right in the middle of our release strategy. So it's just languishing there with not many people knowing it's there, but it's a, it's a really nice record and when we made that that was like sort of my first step back to like finishing songs and uh doing all that and and so uh that's that's sort of how i started to get back was the milo binder sobriquet i guess you would call it um were mm-hmm. you were you always intending to be because even your face is obscured on the album cover was yeah. it always intended to be a sort of um other identity where you didn't want people to know that it was you or that that was sort of a, a, um, a stage presence. Was that a persona? I mean, sort of like, I mean, I never thought it through that much, but look, the, the second song on that album is called a boy in his career, right. which lets you know that even from the beginning, I was already uneasy with this whole idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's just sort of, I guess, been embedded in who I am, but what what originally happened though you know yeah i think the idea of like changing my name when i was a kid i always sort of liked the idea of being able to like be able to walk away from whatever i was doing mm. you know uh and i always kind of felt like a little artifice like if you want to like if you want to connect with people the best way to do it is give them a little artifice that they can sort of scratch the surface and find behind that if you don't do that they sort of don't see a mystery. I, I don't know. That may be too more thought out than I ever was, but I think that's what I sort of instinctively felt. And I just know also like, so in the early days when I was started playing, John Scalacci and I were trying to like book me everywhere. And I'm, you know, like you have to solo guy with an acoustic guitar, like in like the early eighties, you were like dealing with like a big sort of Dan Fogelberg hangover, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what the club, owners and then to be like this kind of you know oddball character that I was right like it wasn't uh they didn't have any frame of reference for it so what we did was like I played as like different fictional character names every time I played which was like a bad way to develop a a following um and then or a good way to develop 50 different followings right right (laughs) yeah 
one one night anyways when i was my little minder binder uh the la reader wrote about me and then it was like oh i'm you know like that's the first time sign of me catching on a little bit so like we just we kept that name and then eventually we dropped the minder to sort of uh, distinguish me a little from the character because people would be like what are you supposed to actually be the character but it really was just a desire to kind of step back a little from myself you well know? you certainly were safeguarded you could always walk away because no no one really saw, knew who you were um yeah. and i think when i interviewed you on my radio show in you know 90 90 or so um you said to me i'll tell you my first name or my last name you only get one because we were trying to <laughs> We're asking if you if Milo was your real name, and uh, I, I was so clever gave, then. So clever, and you get you get. I think you gave us the Lawrence part, but um, okay. yeah, and I think I do think that there is a um, you know it, it was very clever of you actually to kind of create a kind of persona. I mean, it, it's not that different than I mean Bowie did it. We still talk about Bowie as if Bowie was a real person that wasn't even his real name. I mean, you know, everyone sort of oh David Bowie had all these different personas, and it's like David Bowie was a persona, right? So there is a protection there that I think was actually thought out or not was probably very smart. I mean, everybody is a persona, right? Even if they use their real name, yes, like you, of course. Yeah, you're. There's a public version of them and a private version of them, and you know. Like, I mean, I, I look, I just, I came, I think from a point of real insecurity. I was just a kid who like, didn't think I was that interesting. Why would anybody be that interested in me? And so like, you know, I think I wanted I don't, something about being in your twenties. I think you just want to be like a more interesting, beautiful character than you are. I mean, you see it now, like I see it with my own daughter, right? Like they're talking about like body modifications now. And like, you know, it's the same thing, right? You're, at, you're trying to create yourself, mm -hmm. you know? So at some level, you're like, I just wanted to step away from me and into something more interesting than me. And it worked too. Like, cause like in a, in a matter of like months, like magazines were putting me, you know, like taking my picture and people like, were interested in whatever this character was that wasn't any really fully thought out character it was just me in a hat with a, a funny name but like whatever they projected onto that is, is what it was um and then like what what that taught me was just the value of all of that right like it's just okay once you're in those magazines like your life just doesn't get any better mm -hmm. like I had like page two of the LA Times Sunday calendar, big picture of me, and I got fired from a job the same day. You know? <laughs> there you go. So like, you know, I mean, I thought like back then, I think just naively you think, oh, if I get my picture in the paper, if I get a record out or I get whatever, everything's going to just be good and it'll all work out. And then you're just the same person who's in, you're in the newspaper that day, but you're still the same person. Yeah, when my first book came out, I remember that it arrived on my doorstep in a huge box. I opened it, and there's like you know 400 books there. Um, but then I had I had to go to work. You know, <laughs> I could, I couldn't sit with them. I, I actually was late to go to work, and I needed to put gas in the car. And it was like, oh, so no one, you know, this doesn't come with a mansion and a mm -hmm. pension, right? It's right. like it's just art that either catches fire with some people or or doesn't, and. Um, that is a sobering reality check. When I was a kid, I used to think that everybody who put a book out was rich. In my brain, I'm, you know, I just thought you, you must be, you know. 
I think we all thought that, right? Like yeah. that was, yeah. Like, and then like, you know, one day, like, you know, I find out like Alex Chilton is working in a restaurant and you know what I mean? You go like, Oh, you know, Oh shit. You know, like that's, that's how this, but like the cool thing is, is that once you let that in, then you're not like, I mean, like the, the cool thing for me now is I just have no expectations. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like I can just make music for its own sake. The, the nice thing about being older is, is like, I, I'm, I've worked out the money thing. I don't have to worry about like, you know, for music to make me money. I don't have to have it give me identity because I am who I am and people know who I am. And you know what I mean? Like all that stuff, all that prove it to me stuff is off the table. Right. And now like I can just make music like the, the point of doing it now is just to do it. Like, you know, to like connect with a part of myself that I didn't for a while. And, and, you know, uh, be be who I thought I was. Well, the beautiful thing now for you is that you were making music as a kid who was becoming an adult. Mm -hmm. And now you are an adult who's making a music as who you are. There's no there's no metamorphosis that needs to happen. You've you're you, you know, you're who you are, your identity is fixed. And now I imagine the 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 joy comes in right it probably is a much more joyful process oh yeah it's just i mean first off the process of making this record so willie aaron who i mentioned before produced the record right and i'm uh, the other two people or three people who are involved are uh uh kevin jarvis plays uh, uh some drums and did some engineering victor krumenacher plays a little bit of everything ah. you know victor sure uh, he was on the he was on the show okay um, yeah victor from camper van and uh mm -hmm a uh, great guy great 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 guy like like one of my uh just beautiful people just and then jeff peters who's uh, uh uh does sound for uh the beach boys and all that like so i have these like great like people who like i can call on which is like just this this great half-life from my old career that people are willing to sort of work with me you know and and so you can still like that's the nice thing about being at this stage is I can still just call who I want to call and I have access to great musicians. But like, the thing is, it was like an all just like easy personality, lovely human being group, zero drama, all, you know what I mean? So like, I don't know, like it just felt great to do. And like, all I really wanted to do with this record was just make a record that was as good as I felt like, I was, or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like that, an accurate representation of like what my capabilities are. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I think that what we have on tape is, is that I think people are going to hear it. And, you know, like, I don't expect anything big, but I think that there's no excuses. Like what you, if, if you think it's not good, you just think I'm no good because this is, you know what I mean? Like, this is what, yeah. yeah. And so I like feeling like, okay, for better or worse this is this is i don't have any reason to feel like well the producer messed it up or the label did something right. i'm gonna have to hide behind any of that it's going to be called the unspeakable milo binder and it'll be out on when uh we don't know it's it's about to get uh mixed and mastered this month so we're, it's right now like all of the tracking is done and, and mixing is being scheduled like any minute Okay. Send it off for mastering. And then we still have to figure out like, is there a label? Is this, am I 
fulfilling records out of my garage? Does it sit on, you know, I haven't even dealt with any of that yet because we just made the record. How, it seems like you, you strike me as a good friend. Um, you've, you've had friendships for, um, for, you know, you've had friendships that have lasted and you've continued yeah. on, even though you were out of the music business, you maintain these friendships with Kim, with Victor. Um, was, were you somebody who was always peeking in from afar, from Colorado going like, who's making music these days? Because it sounds like you kept in touch with people, but were you also keeping an ear on the scene at all? Or were you, how were you as a listener? I mean, sort of, you know, like in the early days of my, because of my kid's disability, I think I lost like, you know, a good portion of like, say the 90s and early 2000s, just because like, I really couldn't keep up. And I wasn't really, I mean, I don't want to be like the old man who says like, oh, new music, whatever, whatever, you know, but like more and more, like just because of my age or whatever, it wasn't speaking to me and like where I was a lot of the time. You know, like I just wasn't in the demographic they were trying to reach. Yeah. So, you know, and I don't make anybody wrong for that. But like, so I kind of like, I would go to like the record store and I'd see these bands with these interesting names or whatever. And like, I just not relate to it. And like, it would feel, I, I this is dramatic, but it would feel a little bit like my church was desecrated or something or, you I, know, what I mean? but then like, I, over time you realize, hey, that's your problem. Like the world is just moving on you know? Right, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and by the way, I mean, we, you, you think about like mainstream 90s, 2000s, whatever. Um, that's one thing. But there's also, there's always been outsider sure. stuff that was, that never stopped happening. And I wonder, did anything, did anything thrill you? Did you hear anything that you went, oh, oh I, lo- I love this? Sure. I mean, I'm always collecting you know, stuff. sometimes old stuff, sometimes new stuff. I think later tonight, I think I'm going to go see, talk about old stuff like Michael Hurley. I don't know if you're a, a fan, but that's that's yeah. the outsider art, the, the definition of outsider singer-songwriter, right? Yeah. You know, like, so somebody like him or, you know, or uh, I don't know, like modern people, like I really like uh, Michael Kiwanuka, I think is like just ridiculous talent. And, you know, you always pick up people along the way. And, you know, I'm always interested. And of course, again, like I'm a song guy, right? So like just wherever the songs, that's like where I'm going to be like oriented. So when you hear it, you kind of yield to it. And, you know, uh, but like, I, yeah, I'm not necessarily like as voracious about, I mean, I think like I hit the point, this is an old, I'm going to make some old man excuses here if that's cool. Okay. All right. <laughs> I hit the point where you sort of figure out where your fishing holes are and you return to those holes and you kind of know the fish. So like, I'm more likely than I am to like, look at like, fi- try to wade through who's a good new uh musician or a new band or whatever i'm more likely to like go back and look through like psychedelic soul records and like you know go deep down that hole and find somebody i've never heard before because i just know i love that stuff you know but like i'm not resistant if somebody plays me something really good you know i'll listen to it and more and more i the whole idea that there's like good guys and bad guys that like you have to like dislike 
I don't know who who are the whipping boys, the like the old ones, like the Michael Boltons or Kenny G's or whatever like that. That we like, I don't know. Those wars are over. Like if I met one of those guys, you know, I think I'd I'd have like a begrudging kind of respect for like they got out in the arena. They like, you know what I mean? They like I just try to like accept the good and like whatever. I hear and and not not come from that other place because it's just not you know I don't know being a dick about people's music is is a young man's game you know yeah and it's also not a winnable one it's it's just <laughs> yeah. there isn't much of a point I don't think in doing it and it sounds like you moved back to L.A. No, I'm uh, in Vancouver, Washington, which is near Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know why I got the idea you're back now. So you're because so well, I work a lot with L.A. people, you know. Um, yeah, but Victor Krumenacher is up here uh, in Portland, so I, I see him occasionally. And uh, there's a, a contingent of us in uh, Portland. Steve Barton from Translator. Yeah, he was on the show as well. Oh, Steve's so he's a great guy. He is a great, great guy. Yeah. And he probably I'm going to say this out loud. He'll sick of me because I've said it to him a few times too much lately. He's he's writing the best songs of his life right now. You know, I like his old stuff, but he, he's really uh, doing them. I mean, you know, like there, and that's the thing is when you ask me that thing about like music, I mean, truth be told, like a lot of my favorite music is just by people I know. Like I kind of stopped listening. You know how like in records you have like your CDs and then you have like, like the friend pile. Of course. That you kind of keep outside of the, like, like the question of whether they're like, I don't know, like I've, the friend pile means more to me now at this point. That's you, know? the, you look behind me. That's the top shelf on the right. See, that's yeah, right there. That's the friend pile. I want to hear who's in your friend pile. I've right? got a friend pile too. Well, yeah. you know, it's funny because like guys like Steve or Victor, mm -hmm. uh, they are fugitives from the Bay Area where they got they oh, yeah. LA, Steve LA. I mean, where just California got too expensive and they found another place, you know, and and Victor and I were talking about how artists find each other, you know, mm -hmm. creative people find each other. So if there wasn't a scene, there will be one soon, you know? I mean, that's for sure. Look, the thing about having been like putting out that record so many years ago, right? Like, okay, it didn't solve the problem of how I was going to make a living and it didn't make me famous and, you know, I'm not whatever, whatever. But like it put up this flag for the rest of my life that like other people, other creative people find me, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and and like, that has been the best thing, like, you know, outside of my wife and my children of my life is just the people that it just continues to bring into my life. I mean, even like you reaching out to me today, you know, like is, is part of that. I did this thing a long time ago and like, I get the pleasure of spending this time with you and having my, whole thing be taken seriously just because I did that so like I don't know like walking around being uh bitter about like some shit didn't happen for me along like that just doesn't make sense to me you know what I mean like I'm I'm just really feel like like I won the, the more important lottery and like the other stuff I don't know like I figured out how to live and I'm okay and and everything's good. It'd be really nice if like, you know, people hear my record because like, I think these songs are good. I think, um, you know, I mean, I have a healthy ego. I think I'm good at what I do, 
you know, and I hope people will agree with that or whatever, but like, it's not going to crush me, mm. you know, like if it, if it goes by the wayside, then like, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll do it again the next time I feel like it or I won't or whatever, like we'll just get on with life. And, but I'm not going to spend any time like feeling like, I don't know, like something I deserve didn't happen. Cause. Well, it's, it's a relief not to have ego needs that would pin you to those ex expectations because um, they're always going to fall short because it, Ego needs are the equivalent. Someone explained to me once as as like being a bucket with a hole in it. Mm -hmm. You can never you can never fill it. I right. mean, you can you someone someone says to you, you know, like, hey, you're a brilliant singer or songwriter, and your brain, you're like, feed me Seymour. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I, need, I need more to and and what else? Um, yeah. You're never you never get to stop the clock and and rest in the glow of that beautiful comet. Instead, you, it just makes you want more. It's, it's kind of an ugly, an ugly way to be. It, I mean, it isn't until you like sort of learn to laugh at it and with yeah. it, right? Like, cause if you can look and say, ah, oh, there I go, you know, I'm never gonna be satisfied. And you can just sort of like, cause that's where I am with it now, right? Like, I mean, sure, there's a part of me that like, you know, okay, so I'm making this record and like a part of me knows, okay, I know there's, a hundred people who are going to be interested. I know that because I know their names. You know what I mean? So this record is for that hundred people. And then you start saying, but like, is a hundred people, like maybe, I, maybe 400, maybe a thousand. What, like, what's the number? What is the limiting principle <laughs> on like when you've, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what that is, but like, I've just decided to, to pull back. It's for whoever it's for. It's like, you put like a note, in a bottle and you throw it in the water and whoever it's for gets it but you have to like let go of that you know so like that's how i've been with this podcast it's sort of like i've been doing it since 2017 of some just beautiful conversations um and and i don't and those are out there into the world people can listen to them or not but i but my ego is not now if i was 25 doing this yeah. um, i would be a different person and it'd be a different show and it's, right. it's a relief in the way for you to make music now. It's a relief for me to do a program like this at this age in my life where I'm not trying to do something that is going to keep me up at night forever, you know, with worry. For and, sure. And I mean, I listened back to some of your podcasts after we talked about this just to see, and you had like a bunch of people, you know, my old friends and or people I've known along the way who I wasn't close to, but kind of know a little bit, you know. So I listened to all those first and and like, it's just, they were all really interesting, unique conversations and soulful and great. And like, what a cool thing just to, to put that in and, and not like, the nice thing is, is that like, since the world, since there is no show business around all of us and there's no money or whatever, we don't like have to like dance for our dinner the same way. Right. You know Thank what I mean? God. Yeah. Like that we can just do this and this is cool. And like, I don't know, like I had, when I was in middle school, I had this homeroom teacher who like the bell would ring and only half the kids were in their seats and he'd close the door and he'd yell at the kids. And I remember thinking he's yelling at the kids who are here, you know? That's right. And like, I'm just not gonna, you know, like, like, let's just appreciate whoever's here. Yes. And that is such a beautiful way to live. Um, you know, the, the response I've gotten from the podcast, which, you know, from 
a group of people that really appreciate these kinds of conversations mm-hmm. um, has been incredibly gratifying, but it's like putting money in a, in a bank in a totally different way than it would have been if my ego needs were what they were when yeah. I was about 25, 26. Um, it just feels, it just feels healthier and it feels better to me. I mean, I, yeah, I, I get it because that mirrors everything I lived through, you know, you just, yeah. yeah I mean, that's that, look, I think there's a weird generational thing that we're all dealing, you know, you and I, it sounds like we're close generation wise. I'm, I'm like three weeks into generation X, you're five years into generation X. Yeah. Right. But if you're generation X, we, we are, we definitely, we missed the party, right? We For missed sure. the youth culture party. The youth culture thing followed uh, the baby boomers, you know, because like that was, there was an explosion of young people and all the money went to, oh, let's feed young people to young people, right? And right. like, I spent my whole life wondering like why every pursuit, acting, uh, you know, they were no longer making the kind of movies I made. The singer-songwriter movement was dead or dying by the time I got there. Like, why Why I was late to everything until I realized it was structural, right? And like, once I understood that, the whole like, do I suck? Am I bad? Is it, am I being rejected? Just went off the table. I was like, oh, it was never gonna work. Like you, you showed up at the party at like, you know, 1145, you know? Like yeah, you got the last embers of it, you know? And like the cool thing was instead of like being mad about it, like I look at it and say, oh, I got to make a record. I got to meet a lot of my heroes. I have like tons of of friends through this. I have experiences like under my belt that like the average person that I meet, whoever picks up guitar would never have, you know? And like, I don't know, like I'm supposed to be upset about that, you know? I mean, when you put it that way, it's like you, you won. I mean, I, I definitely know at this point like at least relative to me and like what my life is, I definitely feel like I won. Like, I'm just, you know, like it's all gravy at this point. And so like, you know, I'm going to put out this record and like, I hope people like it. I, I certainly know like it's not going to stop the world and I'm not. And and if it did, that would be frightening. So that's cool. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And like, I still get like, like every once in a while, like a a letter or not, I don't get letters anymore, but an, an email or a, I am or something from people who like my old record like 30 years in someone still reaches out to me and sort of tells me that they liked this thing I did once when I was 24 years old I'm like that's amazing you know so my my friend Roland and I from college is my just my absolute uh closest friends he was with me the night that you phoned into my radio show back in 90, right? And you had who your your wife now, she was your girlfriend at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Would right. Julie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And you played some songs for us and she held the phone <laughs> for you. And so years, 20 years later, he and I were talking. He said, I, was, I had just broke up with a girlfriend. And he said to me, you got to find somebody who would hold the phone for you. Man, that's beautiful. She's going to love hearing that. In every possible way of my life, she has. And, you know, I tried to explain this to someone, right, too, like, because, like, when you first started make, making music, what, you, what you're trying to do, right, is you're, you're looking for connection on planet Earth. You know what I mean? You're just looking for, you know, and then you find 
like someone and like the idea that like, well, I'm going to go hit the road and, you know, make, you know, cheat on them or like not, you know, like make my life be out there. Like that just was a non-starter for me. Hmm. Like, I just wasn't going to do that. Like, like my, my life was my life first. And like, I don't, did not have the will to power to like be a musician first and do all the, you know, the things that, that the people I know, you know, I have some friends who are successful or have been successful. I've seen some dark uh, outcomes. You know, I could mention people, you know, who've passed away, who uh, took their own lives or, or you know, uh, drug addiction and other, all. I've seen all that. I have like, that's not me, right? Like my life comes first, the music comes second. Uh, if that keeps me from being more successful, that's cool. You know, yeah. that's a good trade. I think it's a fair trade. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, you're the best man. I, I just, your record has meant so much to me. I'm so happy you're back. Let's not do this in 30 more years. Let's do a, let's. Thanks let's, Alex. You're the best too. This is really like, like, uh, what a lovely thing to get to like meet you, meet you and talk with you. This is really nice. And I really appreciate you. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many people would, would uh, pick me out of the pack and, and put me out uh, in front of people again right now. And that's uh, really nice. And, and it, it made me feel really good that you were interested in this conversation. So just uh, thank you for that. And thank you for just taking what I do seriously. I appreciate it. There you go. Milo Binder, a real sweetheart of a fella and uh, an absolute titanic talent um, from a musical perspective. He is truly one of the best. Go back and get his first album um, from 32 years ago. And uh, the new album will be out soon. And I will announce where you can get that on future episodes. For now, just go to his Facebook page. He's active there. Uh, follow him there. And uh, the information will be revealing itself very soon. But I will be announcing it again on future shows. Milo Binder, the unspeakable Milo Binder, is the new album. And it is coming out. And I can't wait. Big thanks to Milo for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use. Subscribe. Rate and review. Tell all your friends. And um, maybe tell people who aren't your friends, but you want them to be your friends in the future. So this could be like an icebreaker. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast. I will be probably migrating to threads once I figure it out. But for now, Twitter and Instagram are the way to go. Email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Follow Bombshell Radio's exploits by going to BombshellRadio.com. And I think that concludes our business for the day. Did I forget anything? I don't think so. That's all of it. Milo Binder on Facebook. Just go to Facebook, type in Milo Binder, and that will uh, get you right to his page. 
and then you can find out all you need to know about Milo, upcoming shows, where to buy the album. You know how it works. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Skyriders by Milo Binder from his brand new album, The Unspeakable Milo Binder. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. It was the middle of summer, not too much to do, but the grass was green and the sky was blue. So you lie with your sweatshirt stuck under your head And the whole backyard was just a four-poster bed Just as sure as sky riding would fade from the sky August was plotting to murder July I was pulling the needles out of my mama's cactus Riders practice now, I never was that big on ambition I was wired like a car with a faulty ignition Always running in circles, moving round and round It's how I lost every job that I ever found understand anyway why we trade so much time for so little pay when I trade all the money I have in my mattress if you could show me where sky riders practice I won't know Practice.